Almighty God, we give you thanks for this class, to the, this privilege to open your word, to think about your revelation. Lord, we thank you that you have not been silent, that you have not left us um, groping about in the darkness, but you reveal yourself to us. And so we pray that uh, we would receive this news, we would receive this this um, revealing with joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're talking about the attributes of God. We're specifically talking about those attributes which makes God um, wholly different, that there's none like him. And one of the, uh, the foundational understandings that we must have about God is that God is infinite. Infinite, and when I and uh, we talked about this in the eternal class, uh, his his eternalness. Um, what does it mean that God is infinite? Does anyone recall? As opposed to the fact that we are finite. Yes, uh, it means that uh, finite means that we have limits, right? That there's an end to us. Uh, but there are no limits. There is, God is uh, wholly unbounded, right? Um, and we talked about how God is infinite with respect to time. That makes him eternal. Today we're going to talk about how he is infinite with respect to space. Um, that makes him omnipresent, omni meaning all, so he's present everywhere. And then we're going to talk about two more things in the next two classes, and then we'll wrap up the series with respect to his knowledge. Uh, which makes him omniscient, and then with respect to his power, which makes him omnipotent. Uh, omnipotent. Um, so just to, you know, we're going to focus on space, but I think it's really helpful to think about how he is unlimited with respect to time. And we said that we are time-bound creatures, right? And we're temporal, so that we're constantly living only in the present. We can recall the past, but we have no access to the future, but neither the future nor the past can we change, right? Um, the past has happened. Um, it's set in stone, right? We can regret it. We can uh, think fondly of it, but it is done. But God is not like that. God is not limited by time. He doesn't live in time, but um, all time is equally accessible to him. And we talked about how God is vividly experiencing all time always as a present, ever present, right? So for us, it's 2016, right? And we think back to maybe, we can think back to, um, you know, 2014, or we can, we can read about in the history books centuries before, but we're living in 2016, right? And then we often think that God is also in 2016, but God is not in 2016, right? God is transcendent over time. 2016 uh, is equally accessible and vivid and present to him as all time is, from everlasting past to ever well from the beginning of time to the everlasting future, right? Now, uh, so that's a little bit hard to grasp. <laughs> um, God is also transcendent over all space. So let's think about human beings, right? Finite creatures, how we relate to space. We are confined and restricted by physical space. So, you know, I'm in this room, right? Uh, which means that I'm nowhere else. <laughs> um, 
uh, I'm in this space, which means that for me, that space would be, I would say, over there. And for me to get there, I would have to traverse, I would have to travel, I would have to move. And then I arrive at that space. But now I've vacated that space, right? Um, I'm always, I can only be in one space at one time. And the space that I'm in, I understand, right? Like, I'm in this room, so I see all of you. I know what all of you are doing. But because I'm in no other room, um, I don't know what anyone else is doing right now. <laughs> I have no idea if my children are obediently listening to Christina, but if I had my guess, it would be that they are making a ruckus and being mischievous. Uh, but I don't know, right? I have to ask Christina later, how was the morning routine? Um, so God is not like human beings. God is not finite. God is not confined by space. He is transcendent over space, just like he is eternal. He is in every space. So that all space is right here for God. Does that make sense? Um, just like right here is here for me, right here, as well as right here, as well as right here, is right here for God. Every room is, God is in the room, so to speak, okay? Now, how do we understand that? Um, so, it's not that God's presence is like a gas, right? Where, like, let's, so, suppose I bring a canister of gas, and then I pop it open, and then the gas fills the whole room, Right? So God's presence is not like a gas where he's diffused and because he would, he would be stretched out and attenuated and, and scattered. But that God is fully present, completely present in all of his fullness in every space. Right? Theologians say this, call this, he's repletively present. Um, so how can that be, right? And the answer is that God is not a physical being. As Jesus says when he was speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, John 4, God is a spirit. Sometimes we ask, well, what is a spirit? Uh, this is a word that we don't know, <laughs> right? Um, a spirit is a being which is not physical. <laughs> um, well, what is not physical? We don't know because we're, we're, we're physical beings. But, but God is, pr- is fully present. So in this room right now, God in all of his fullness is present. Just as I am present in this room, he is even more present because he is present in every space. And he's not present in the sense that he's this enormous being, right? Like I remember in ancient mythology, you would, you would look at uh, pictures of the way the ancients thought of the gods. And if a god was uh, capable of being in many places, it's because the god was really big, right? Like I, I remember this image of a god who would, who's so long and stretched over the skies, right? So that from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, the God would be there. But it's not that God is this enormous giant, right? He's striding across the universe, right? Um, because because am I present in, in this where my toe is? Well, my toe is present where my toe is, but I'm not fully conscious or, 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 or aware of that space. So God is not a giant. God is not a gas. But God is fully present in every space. So let's read the first passage. This is Job chapter 11. This is uh, Job's friends talking to Job, right? Counseling Job. This is Zophar. And Zophar says to Job that there are no secrets with God. So he's encouraging Job to confess your sins, right? And then this is what he says. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? So that's a very important phrase there. Um, Does God have limits? And the answer is no. He's infinite, right? 
Verse 8, it is higher than heaven. What can you do? It is deeper than Sheol. What can you know? So let me pause right here and write this word because it's going to come up one more time. The Hebrew word Sheol. Does anyone know what Sheol means? Huh? I heard somebody's mutter. Hades. Grave? What? Hades. Hades. So the older translations rendered it Hades, which is a fairly useful and helpful translation uh, because it's a reference to Greek mythology, right? Hades being the underworld. Sheol is actually untranslatable, which is why it's now, in modern translations, left untranslated. It's left in the Hebrew. Um, it means it means the ground, but it doesn't just mean the ground. It means the grave where you die and you're buried. It doesn't just mean the grave. It means the underworld. It means hell. But it has all these ranges of meanings. It means like the, the depths of the earth. I think um, uh, I, I looked at it here, sh- deeper than Sheol. I think in some translations it says depths, right? But in the old King James Version, it would say Hades, right? So in any case, deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. So what is Zophar saying to Job? He's saying um, the highest heights, God is there. The lowest depths, God is there, right? All the expanse of of physical creation, there God is. And the passage actually is inviting us to contemplate the expansiveness of the physical universe, right? Um, I just this weekend, I was reading an article about how, you know, w- we talk about uh, the cosmos, the Milky Way galaxy, the galaxy that we, that our star is in, has around maybe 300 million stars. Um, how many galaxies are there? Um, if our galaxy is an average size, galaxy, there's some that are much larger, some that are much smaller, but the estimate is there's about 100 to 200 billion galaxies, but I just saw an article today that that estimate might be um, off by a factor of 10. There might be a trillion galaxies in the observable universe, so we're talking about expanses of space um, and, and, and physical reaches that is just mind-boggling. The human mind cannot, the human mind cannot grasp a billion, right? I told you that in the ancient world, they didn't count they didn't have a number higher than 10,000, right? Because um, that is just... <laughs> it's, it's just, The difference between a million and a billion to us, right, is just, you might as well just use nonsense sounds, right? So God is, it, is, God is present where every molecule exists, where every planet, where every star, where every comet is in the entire vast universe. God is accept, has access to that space. And it shows us his greatness. Let's read um, Acts chapter 7. This is Stevens' speech um, before he is killed. So who can I pick on? David, can I have you read verse 48? Oh, so let me set this up to you. So he's talking about Solomon's temple, right? Solomon built this grand house, this grand building um, for the majesty, for the glory of God. But Stephen goes on to say, Yeah, so Stephen is saying, in the Bible, he's quoting here Psalms, that we should not mistaken the fact that the temple, this building, is contains the whole the fullness of God, right? Um, or let me put, maybe that's not the best way to put it. It, it. it doesn't, it's not like God is this great invisible being, and then he gets into the temple, and he's like, now, you know, I, I have shelter. 
um, because in the ancient world, uh, the ancient people thought of gods as limit as very much like human beings or finite creatures, limited in space and time. That's why that's why there there is polytheism, because every region has a god, um, every sphere of life has a god. That's why there are many many gods, right? Um, do you guys remember the story of Jonah? Jonah is running away from God. So Jonah says, what am I going to do? I'll just go out to sea and get on the boat far, far, as, far away as possible, and then I can escape God. But the God of the Bible, the true God, the true and living God, um, is not limited in any space by any, uh, any, any physicality. Um, and that leads me to my next point, which is God is present in all creation, upholding and sustaining so the fact that God is present in every space um, helps us to appreciate this this doctrine, this teaching in the Bible that God is sustaining creation. So kind of the imagery that we often have about God is he's a divine watchmaker, right? And he creates the world. He sort of winds up the clock and then he stands back and he passively watches the world sort of move. And he only occasionally intervenes in the world for to perform a miracle, Right, but actually, the Bible tells us all the time that God is actively present in every moment, in every space, and He is sustaining that that physical thing. Right, so that all molecules are are being upheld and sustained by God, who is the source of all reality. If God were to withdraw, if God were to stop and cease this upholding, creation would cease to exist. Right. Um, so let me just go through three passages that, that, that demonstrate this. I think this is really amazing. Hebrews chapter 1, first of all. He, speaking of Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, listen, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Um, Colossians chapter 1. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Uh, Acts chapter 17. This is Paul at the uh, Mars Hill. In him, we live and move and have our being. So I, I had a friend who I, I remember, um, he, would, he, was, he was also a pastor, and he would say that even in our rebellion, God is upholding us. He says that when we sin and when we disobey God and when we're angry at God or when we attack God, he says the imagery we should have is it's like a little child, um, a little toddler child standing on his father's knees, slapping the father. The father... Um, allows this child to do this because if the father said, wait a minute, the child would fall to the ground and have no access to being able to slap the father's face. It's only because the father is upholding the child can the child even do this, right? So every moment of our existence, every breath that we take, every ray of sunshine that we enjoy, every moment of happiness that we have is only possible because the father is constantly Almighty God is constantly upholding the universe by his power, right? So it should fill us with gratitude. Um, any quick questions before we move on to the next point? So far, so good. It seems like a very benign and happy doctrine. And then we will see that we will be discomforted. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so next point. The comfort and but also the terror of God's omnipresence. So uh, I have printed for you Psalms 139, verses 7 through 10, but let me read to you verses 1 through 6 as well. 
So let me access to the miracle of the internet, uh, verses 1 through 6. It's not printed for you, but let me just read it to you, okay, and listen. Because this is David. He's t- David is talking about how God is inescapable, right? That God knows him completely, uh, exhaustively. Listen. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know where I, when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Right? Everything that David does, God knows intimately. Listen, even before a tongue, I'm sorry, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Right? Even before David utters a thought or a word, God knows it exhaustively completely, right? You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And in verse 7, I have it already printed for you. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I, my, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So, very similar to the passage we looked at in Job. The highest heavens, God is there. The lowest depths, God is there. He says in verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning, which direction is the morning? does the morning begin? East, right? So he says, if I go to the furthest east, you are there and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. If you're, if you're living in Palestine, where is the sea? It's west. The Mediterranean Sea is the west, right? So if I go to the furthest reaches of the west, right, the highest heights, lowest depths, farthest east, farthest west, God is there. And David is reflecting on this, and he's like overwhelmed and amazed by this, right? There is no escaping God. God knows everything. He knows all of your thoughts. He sees everything that you do. So this is both a terror and a comfort. So let's talk about the terror aspect of it. So when people want to do something evil, what do they do? They put on a mask, (laughs) right? They do it under cloak of night, right? Um, you do it behind closed doors, you whisper. It's all a secret, right? Because you don't want to be exposed. You don't want to be observed, right? <laughs> but what this is telling us is that there is no hiding from God. There is no closed doors with God. And this is a radical threat to us. Um, a very uh, famous French philosopher, Sartre, had this interesting observation. I heard this uh, uh, in a talk one time. He says, imagine that somebody was following you wherever you went, right? So, you know, you're shopping around, he's following you, watching what you shop. Okay, that's not so bad. But then now, he follows you home. He follows you into your bedroom. He watches what you're reading. You know, he looks at all of your conversations. He's tagging along wherever you go. And you're like, you're being intrusive. This is very impolite. (laughs) Um, I don't like it. Uh, 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 Sartre says, imagine there's a key, there's a, there's a little peephole, and somebody is looking through the peephole at your life. You cannot observe him, but he observes you. Everything that you do, that is a, a terrible, uh, um, 
terrifying threat. And he says, God is like that. God is like this giant eye peering at you all the time, looking at everything that you do. There is no secrets with God, right? Um, and so Sartre says, I reject that God. That's a vile, that's, a, that's an evil God. But here David, he seems to talk about that as well. He seems to talk about the threat of the fact that God knows him exhaustively. But it's not a threat. It, sh- it, should, all- it should be an aid and a help to you. Um, because secrecy breeds evil. You know, like uh, uh, they've done studies, like if you're a businessman and you happen to travel a lot, the temptation to be unfaithful to your spouse is quite high. Why is that? Because um, in the community you live, it's very hard to carry on an affair, right? Um, you can't take your extramarital girlfriend out shopping, right? Because there are many people who know you. They could see you, right? But if you go to a, 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 another place, a, a city where nobody knows you, and everything is a secret, you can have an affair, right? But suppose instead of that, your wife travels with you everywhere you go. Now, if your wife travels with you, is that a threat? <laughs> is your, is, is it, <laughs> Christina, stop following me around. Actually, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a most pleasant reality. I love to be with Christina and travel with Christina, but it would also be a check, right? It would also be an inducement for holy living. Like, here's another way to think about it. Um, when you're with somebody that you love, you become your best self. And when you are alone, you become your worst self. Imagine your, your, the people that you love are with you all the time surrounding you. It would be an inducement to holy living and an encouragement to, to, to do your best. And that leads me to my next point, which is that God's presence is the deepest comfort in our lives. When there's a tragedy, when there's a disaster, people often say this question, where is God? Where is God in all of this? But the doctrine of omnipresence tells us that God is always present. One of my favorite passages, end of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, right? The Great Commission, Jesus says to us, I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, Judah sleeps in my bedroom, <laughs> and uh, he experiences terrors at night. And uh, all the time, Judah will say, Daddy? Yes, Judah? Okay, I just, I just wanted to check if you're there. <laughs> um, but sometimes he'll he'll start to cry uncontrollably. He's, he's terrified of the dark. He's terrified of being alone. So I have to hold his hand, and I have to stroke his hair, and I have to say, Judah, Daddy's here. I'm not going to leave you. And then he'll say, but what about the goblins? <laughs> what about the monsters? I'll fight the monsters, Judah. And he begins to calm down. He begins to feel at ease. Um, they've done studies, interesting studies, where... Um, your experience of pain is greatly diminished if you're with a loved one. So they've done these weird psychological studies where they'll attach electrodes to you and then they'll shock you in a very painful way. And then they'll measure your pain response. And then they'll, and then they'll do the exact same experiment where you're holding the hand of the person you love the most. And while you're holding the hand of the person you love the most, they shock you, your experience of pain plummets. It diminishes greatly. Because when you're in the presence of a loved one, you, you can take the, the, the hurts and the pains of life. And so Hebrews 13.5 says this, listen, God says, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. 
right? So when you are in the worst experience of your life, God is with you. God is there. He's not limited by space and time. And that leads me to my next point, which is that um, the doctrine of omnipresence means that God is not limited by space. He's everywhere present. But he is present with us who love him, who know him in a special way, in a relational way. Um, Because God isn't present. God isn't with all people in the same way. Remember the garden, right? When Adam and Eve were created, what did what did what did what does the text say that God did with Adam and Eve? It says that He walked with them, right? Now, wasn't God present at all times in the garden? Of course, um, but there's a sense in which God's presence draws near, and there's a relationship, there's a fellowship, there's a love. Um, I've experienced this many times in my life. God is always with me, as Hebrews says, as, as Jesus says in the end of Matthew. But there have been times in my life where I've experienced vividly the presence of God. I don't know if you've experienced this as well, where I've really sensed God is with me. I feel the presence of God. Um, so let's read Psalm 27. Can I have Tracy read for us? One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. So let me stop you right there. The house of the Lord. What is the house of the Lord, Tracy? <laughs> Close. Keep going. Who? What, what's the house of the Lord here? Oh, the ark. <laughs> Close. Ark. Ark is one of the artifacts. The temple. The temple. Right. So he's talking about the temple. Remember, we said that the temple um, does not limit God. It's not like God is in the temple but nowhere else. But God is especially in the temple. In a special way, his presence dwells in the temple. So David, the psalmist here, is saying, I I long to be in God's presence, to dwell in the temple. Keep going. All the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to, and to inquire in his temple. Keep going. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O oh, you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O oh God of my, my salvation. Yeah, it's a really beautiful psalm. I wish we could read and analyze the whole psalm. But I want to focus on this expression in verse 8, where David says, You have said to me, seek my face. Um, so let's talk about the face of God. Um, I, I've said before that the Hebrew language is very is not abstract. It doesn't have a lot of abstract words. It's very metaphorical. It uses imagery to convey abstract uh, ideas. And so it doesn't, uh, every time you see the word, the presence of God in the Old Testament Hebrew, it's actually, the, the literal word is it's the face of God. Um, and the face of God is a metaphor for his presence. And we can understand how the metaphor works, right? Like, you're seeing my face. So you know what I'm thinking. You know my emotions, like if I'm talking to you face to face, we're having a relationship. But what if I gave the whole lesson like this, <laughs> right? And I'm talking, you could hear my words, but is it the same experience? It's not, right? The face, there's something, the face is the portal, it's the access gateway to the emotions, to the thoughts. So what God is saying, what David is saying here, is David is saying, I mean, God is saying, my face. Right, you will see my face, seek my face. You will know me, and you will hear me. Right, um, it's a, and so it's an expression of intimacy. 
And what is Psalm 27 saying? It's saying that we experience the face of God, the, 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 the intimate, beautiful presence of God when we walk with him in obedience and when we seek him. Um, you know, God is present everywhere, but his face, his, his nearness, we only experience when we're walking in obedience, when we're seeking him, and it happens through the Holy Spirit. Um, so the Holy Spirit, I, I think a good explanation for the Holy Spirit is, the Holy Spirit is God with us, and it's God communicating to us his this relational love, right? Imagine, so imagine this, right? Imagine a father and a son are taking a walk. And suddenly the father stops, and he picks up his son, and he hugs him, he kisses him, he embraces his son, and then he puts his son down, and then they continue on their walk together. Now, when the son is being hugged and when the son is being kissed, is he more a son than before that happened? No, his status is the same. He is his father's son. But what about his experience of sonship, right? He experiences his sonship in a deep, profound way. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing to us and communicating to us. That's what it means to see the face of God. It's God picking you up and hugging you and saying, you are my dear, precious child. I love you. I delight in you. Um, So remember I said that God's presence can be a threat, but actually the scripture tells us over and over again, God's presence is like a father in a room. Uh, delighting in his child. The the child feels safe. But then there's the flip side of that, which is that even though God is omnipresent, we cannot escape him even when we do evil, yet nevertheless when we disobey him, when we commit sin, he pulls away, right? He turns his face away. So let's read Isaiah 59. David, um, can I have you read that? Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear so when we sin, when we disobey, when, we're in re- when we're, our life is in rebellion against God, and when we do not seek him, what do you feel in your life? You feel distance. You feel separation, that God is not with us. And that, of course, that makes sense. When you violate a relationship, when you uh, violate the person whom you're having a relationship with, um, that you lose the relationship. And so in our sins, we're running from God. In our sins, we're, we're, we're saying, God, I hate you. Get away from me. Let me live my own life. And so God turns his face away. Um, and yet he is still present. Um, that leads me to my last point. But before I get to my last point, any questions? Okay. The last point. So this will cook your noodle, right? So... The question that should naturally come to you, maybe not not naturally, but it will come to you, if God is present everywhere in all time, is God also present in hell? And the answer is, yes, he is present in hell. There is no realm, there is no space that God is barred from, that God cannot be, right? Um, So God will be present in hell, in heaven, in joy with his people, and then God will also be present in hell for all eternity in wrath against evildoers. 
So let's let's take them one at a time. Number one, first, God is present with his people. Revelation 21, um, John Ward, can you read that for us? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Yeah, to be in the presence of God, to see his face, is our greatest hope. We will enjoy intimacy. We will enjoy nearness with him forever and ever. Um, recently, my wife and I, we've been, uh, we started this new thing where we have date nights. Every Monday night, we have a date night, except we date our children. Um, so uh, the kids, uh, Christina will date Judah, and then I'll date Noah, and then we'll switch. And we'll each go to a different like place and do something. And, of course, the children vastly prefer Christina. Um, and when, when Judah is on a date with Christina, he is on cloud nine. He's so happy. Because all of his time with mom is pretty much shared time with Noah, right? But this is exclusive one-on-one time with Christina for two hours. He is ecstatic. He is so happy. <laughs> Likewise with Noah. Noah just gets to cuddle and hug his mom without restraint. And it's this incredible image. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It reminds me of this movie, AI. Has anyone seen the movie, AI? Pretty much any sci-fi movie I love. (laughs) So AI is a very strange movie by Steven Spielberg. It's not like Steven Spielberg at all. But anyways, I'm going to pretty much ruin the ending for you. If you haven't seen the movie, it's like 20 years old. It's your fault. Um, (laughs) But it's this little boy who is an android, right? He's an artificial intelligence. And he's been programmed to love his mom, right? Um, And actually, he's a replacement for her lost child. But what happens is her her child um, become, uh, uh, is, is saved, right? So she discards the robot child. And then the robot child for his entire life, because he's programmed this way, he's looking for his mom. Right, And so he goes on this incredible odyssey, this incredible journey through this dystopian future world. right? And then at the very end, he basically, this is where the movie gets really weird. Um, the whole earth, it's like thousands of years pass by. The whole, all of humanity becomes extinct and aliens find him. right? And then aliens say, we'll, we'll grant you one wish. He says, I want to spend a day with my mom. So they say, okay, we've, we have her DNA, We're gonna re- and we have all her records. We're going to recreate her for only one day. That's all our capacity is. So this child wakes up, and his mom is there, and they make a birthday cake, and they're doing little arts and crafts. And the whole day he spends with her, and, he, and, and I remember the movie, it says it was the happiest day of his life. And then they go to sleep, and then she dies, right? She, she never wakes up, and he, and he shuts down because that was his greatest hope. That's what we're going to have, except it's not going to end. right? Our greatest hope, our greatest longing, our heart's longing is to be with God forever and ever, to enjoy his presence. That's, what we'll, that's what's awaiting us, those who love him, those who seek his face. But on the flip side, what about hell? So we think of hell typically as the absence of God. Right? God is not in hell. That's the punishment of hell. And that's correct to a certain degree, to a large degree. Jesus often describes hell as the outer darkness. Why, why, does, why is hell the outer darkness? Because God is light, pure light. The, the, the outer darkness is away from the light of God. Um, in Matthew 25, remember Jesus tells a story about the, the, the end of history. He says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, 
And what will Jesus say to the, to these people? He will say, away from me, for I never knew you. Away, away, right? So how is separation from God in a certain extent? But what that means is it's, it's separation. It's the absence of God's love. It's the absence of God's delight. It's the absence of God's pleasure, but it is not his entire absence. Hell is the presence of his wrath. Hell is the presence of his anger at evil. And here we see Revelation chapter 6. Let me read, let me read it to you because for the sake of time, this is talking about the experience of those who are damned, who are doomed to judgment forever and ever, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And so what this is saying is that hell, God will be present in hell, but his presence, unlike for those of us who are with God in the new creation, new heavens and new earth, God's presence will be unbearable. It will be such a terror, it will be such a horror to um, those who hate God that they will say, may the rocks fall upon me, may the mountains cover me that I may escape the awful wrath of God. And here we have to contemplate something that's very difficult for our, our minds to grasp, that God will be eternally present with his people rejoicing. And he will be eternally present with the damned in wrath and in anger. And he will be doing that simultaneously forever and ever and ever from all eternity. Our minds cannot grasp this, right? Because we can only do one thing at one time, right? Imagine, so we can only rejoice in a certain setting, right? Imagine a reunion party with your best friends that you haven't seen in many years, and you're hugging and you're crying and, and you're, you're having a wonderful meal together, you know, the best food, maybe the best wine. Oh, you're so satisfied. You're so happy. Imagine another setting. Imagine you're at the scene of a horrendous crime. Imagine you come upon this, this mass murder scene and then you see the criminal who has committed it. Imagine you're at a trial and you hear testimony after testimony, witness after witness, testify about this evildoer, this really wicked person and the vile things he has done and you're burning with indignation and righteous wrath. How can you experience that emotion and the happiness emotion and the rejoicing emotion simultaneously? We cannot. We are limited creatures. But God will be able to do that and God will do that. He'll be burning with wrath and anger against evil, against injustice forever and ever in hell. And he will be filled with delight and rejoicing like this incredible reunion, this incredible feast with his people. Um, so that the holiness and the goodness of God is a delight to us. But that very same thing, the holiness and the goodness of God will be a terror, will be a horror, a stench to those who hate God forever and ever. Um, so, with that, let me see how I'm doing time. Any questions on that? I'll give you some moments to, to think. I think maybe I'm just not meant to understand. So it's not that he turns off his, like, goodness. Or his, like, 
No, he's still right. good. Right. But but his goodness means um, his goodness doesn't mean softness. Right. His goodness doesn't mean he winks at sin. Eh. His goodness means that. So I recently heard this talk about uh, racial injustice, <laughs> the history of racial injustice in the United States, and. I was experiencing two emotions. I was like weeping because I was so sad at injustice. But I was filled with anger at just the evil things that human beings are capable of committing to each other. When you're good, it doesn't mean that you don't that you suddenly don't care about injustice. It means you care deeply. And so his goodness and his love, um, it's not that he hates, but because of his love, He's angry with evil and sin. Does that answer your question? So it's not that God is different in hell than he is in heaven. He is the one and same, the true and the living, holy, righteous, good God. But that goodness is experienced radically differently um, by those who are in hell versus those who are in heaven. So, let me conclude then that uh, I hope that this series increases your awe, your wonder at who God is. I hope it in- builds up your faith. I hope it encourages you um, when you are feeling low. Um, recently, somebody asked me, somebody said to me, I'm feeling really low. Um, can you give me a good devotional book to encourage me? And I think that's really good. That, that instinct is great. Um, but I actually told this person, rather than read a devotional book, you should read about God. Because um, I think so many of our problems um, can be addressed and can be healed when we stop thinking about ourselves. Not that, th- not that we want to diminish or, or um, trivialize what we're going through. They are deep and profound. But a lot of times, we need to just draw our gaze to God. And when we, when we behold God high and lifted up, almighty, glorious and great, we're healed, right? We're we're, we're nourished. So let's pray. Almighty God, um, how can our minds grasp who you are, um, your majesty, your greatness, and at the same time, you bend your knees, you crouch down, and you pick us up with such tenderness, with such love, a father's love, and we're overwhelmed by that tension, right? Your transcendence and at the same time your intimate eminence. We pray that we would constantly be filled with wonder in this life and in the life to come. We pray that we would seek your face. We pray that we would pursue you in scripture, in Christian fellowship. We would constantly be desiring to know you more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, thank you, everybody.